We are continuing on in our series called Reclaim, looking at the five essential truth, the truths of the Protestant Reformation, that we believe in the authority of Scripture alone, we believe that salvation is by God's grace alone, that we receive salvation through faith alone, that salvation is only in Christ alone, and that all of salvation, and in truth, all of reality in our lives and everything, is for the glory of God alone. And so today we're beginning two sessions or two sermons on faith alone. We'll be looking at Luther's struggle with faith alone and how he came to that reclamation. I think you say reclamation. That's a word, right? It is now. I joined the long list of preachers that like to uh, make up words. And, uh, but he reclaimed the concept of faith alone. He didn't make it up. It was there all along. It's in the scriptures. We'll look at that. It had been taught by the apostles. It was taught in the early church. But somewhere over the ages, that idea had been lost or so redefined, as we'll see, to truly be contrary to what scripture teaches. Now, we just finished up two weeks on grace alone. And we looked at the idea that that the Protestant idea and the Catholic idea, in a sense, on the surface, looks very similar. We believe, if you look at Catholic doctrine, they would believe you are saved by grace. And we agree on that. We talked about we have a different definition of grace. Uh, But most importantly, when it comes to God's grace, I think the difference lies in how we receive that grace. And so that's what we're going to look at today. How is it that the grace of God is extended to us? How is it given to us? What is our part, if you will? Because God is gracious, right? But how do we receive that grace? And we're going to look at how Martin Luther struggled with this concept. Luther wanted to be righteous. He believed in the grace of God. He believed in salvation that came through God's grace. And he looked at his own life and he said, I need that grace. I am a wicked, wretched sinner. I need that grace. He was feeling guilty of his own unrighteousness. He said, he wrote, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. So he said this gospel, which the word means good news, The good news is God judges you for your sin and you don't measure up. That's what Luther understood it to mean. That's what he had been taught to mean. And so the effort then is that there is this grace so that you can have the righteousness to measure up and you better work hard to tap into that grace and have it be applied to you. You have to live a life that is so good that God will give you his grace. Now, Luther was really struggling with this because he knew his wickedness. The more he studied Scripture, the more he came to know God, he understood the Lord's holiness and his own sinfulness. And so this concept of God judging him based on God's righteousness and our sinfulness just led him to despair. At one point, he had the opportunity to travel to Rome. In 1510, Luther took a trip along with Uh, a colleague, and they went to Rome. And this was 
something Luther looked forward to for a very long time. He wanted to be the best Catholic he could be. He wanted to earn his own righteousness, to get so much of God's grace that he could have some semblance of assurance that when he died, he would go to heaven. And he was struggling with that fact. What better place to gain assurance than the holy of holies of the Catholic world, Rome itself? There in Rome, there were pilgrimage and, and pilgr- pilgrimages and uh, acts of penance that couldn't be done anywhere else. There were shrines to saints that couldn't be accessed anywhere else. There were relics that could be prayed to that couldn't be accessed anywhere else. So Luther was very excited to go to Rome. When he got to Rome, he saw a lot of things he didn't want to see. He saw high-level church officials visiting portions of town that they had no business being in. Areas of town with a very bad reputation. He saw the Catholic Mass, the the sacrament, the declaration of God's grace. He, He saw priests whose duties it were over and over and over again throughout the day to say the Mass. He saw it being done very lightly. In fact, he saw them in jest changing the words of the Mass because they were so sick of saying it over and over again, they would just take it lightly. And he was despondent. He just couldn't believe this. But to be honest, he also expected some of it. Word had traveled around the empire that that some of these things were going on in Rome. And yet Luther also knew that beyond all of this, the church didn't ultimately depend upon the people of that day. There was something underneath that, a truth that he was seeking, a deeper reality that just didn't depend upon the sinfulness of humanity. He said, I'm going for the truth. He wanted to seek his own righteousness. He didn't have a lot of time when he was in Rome. And so he went to one place that, according to tradition, was guaranteed to make one righteous. You could earn the most amount of righteousness in grace through a certain act of penance. And by doing this act of penance, you could earn years back from purgatory for yourself or for somebody else. And it was known as the, I want to get this right, the Sancta Scala, the Holy Stairs. These Holy Stairs were in Rome... But history, tradition, says that they were brought from Jerusalem. They were thought to be the very stairs that led up to Pilate's palace in Jerusalem. And around 400 AD, so the story goes, although nobody can confirm it, uh, they were somehow shipped to Rome and put back together. Now understand the importance of this. Pilate was the Roman official during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus was brought before Pilate for his trials. So understand what would have happened. Jesus himself would have climbed the stairs to Pilate's house a few times during his trial. In fact, it's even possible, so they say, that some of the beatings that Jesus took would have happened on these stairs. And in fact, there are stains on the stairs, they say, are the actual blood of Jesus Christ. Now understand, even the Catholic Church admits nobody can prove any of this. And it's very highly likely that it's all made up. But the idea was that you could go there and you could get on your knees and you could climb the stairs on your knees and on each step say the Lord's Prayer. And every step that you 
climbed onto with your knees hurting and bruised and in agony and repeating the Lord's Prayer, every single step gains you a certain number of years out of purgatory. And if you got all the way to the top, you got bonus years. I'm not making this up. I really am not. And Luther thought if he had just a short amount of time, this was the place to spend his time. He would climb the holy stairs and say the Paternoster over and over and over again to try to get someone out of purgatory. Now, Luther, understanding what this meant in the times, he actually said later on that the thought went through his head that he regretted that his parents had not yet passed away. Because if they had, he could have worked on their behalf to get them out of purgatory. Do you see how twisted this is? But because they had not yet passed, he had to work on behalf of someone else. And so he chose to do it on behalf of his grandfather, whom the Catholic Church would have said, like everybody else, was laboring away in purgatory to pay back his sins before he could get to heaven. And so Luther climbed and Luther prayed. Now, tradition records that somewhere up the stairs, a thought entered Luther's head like a lightning bolt. Scripture was recalled to his mind, and that scripture was Romans 1.17. The just by faith shall live. And Luther said, why am I doing this? This is not what it's all about. He got up and he went home and he wrote his 95 theses, nailed them to the door. Much like the stairs, that's probably not true. Uh, That was written later. What careful historians have found in Luther's own notes is that he actually did finish. Climbed all the way to the top. And after going through the agony of this experience on behalf of his grandfather, that you would think he could have gotten to the top and said, yes, I've done it. My grandfather is better off. I have some assurance now that he will be in heaven. Instead of that assurance, he gets to the top and he claims, who knows whether it is so? Who knows? I just did this, but I don't know if it worked. How could I possibly know if it had any effect at all or if I was righteous enough through this deed for it to be counted by God to earn the grace that would save my grandfather? Understand what this means. As Luther thought the way he had been trained, that he had earned God's grace, he came to realize that there would never, ever be any assurance that he had done enough. Never. How could he know? And some of this comes from the Roman Catholic Church's understanding of righteousness that is by faith. Luther had been taught that righteousness is infused. Now understand what that means. If you've ever been to the hospital or been to the hospital and seen somebody else, you'll often get an IV bag, right? To get a tube that goes into your vein and a bag that sits up on a stand and and that drips over time an infusion, saline, medicine, whatever it is. You don't get it all at once. That would probably be harmful. You get a little bit at a time. That was their understanding of righteousness, God made you righteous as you did good works. And if you had faith and believed in that righteousness that would be infused, you would do the good works so that you would get the righteousness. That's how they understood living by faith in order to get the righteousness of God. 
That's why Luther did what he did. It's why he spent hours in confessional trying to confess all of his sins so he would do the works of righteousness, get the grace of God, and be infused with righteousness. A key issue for the church and for Luther was this passage right here. Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 declares, in the NIV at least, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that's a quote from Habakkuk. In the Latin translation, which is what the Catholic Church used, the word was understood as being made righteous. A life of faith makes you righteous. Do you see the difference? If you live in faith and do the things that accompany faith, then God infuses you, this drip, into your life of the righteousness. And if you get enough of the righteousness over a long enough time, you'll be okay. If you don't, you're in big trouble. How can you ever know? Now, Luther studied the Greek the language that the New Testament was actually written in. And what he came to realize was that when the scholars translated it into Latin, they messed up. They changed the word. And it was not what it meant. What it said in Latin was not what it said in Greek. The word in Greek means to count as or declare to be righteous. It is not an earning of righteousness. It is the judge that declares somebody that has been brought into the courtroom, declares them to be innocent, not based on anything they've done, but just says, you are innocent. And that's it. They're innocent from there on. It is a declaration that doesn't happen over time. It is a one-time thing, declared to be innocent. The word here means declared by God to be innocent. Now, if I could just step out of the sermon for a second. There are some traditions where we hold on to a particular translation. And, and if I could, just be really careful with that, okay? Anytime a translation happens from the original Greek and the original Hebrew, it is possible for misunderstandings to come in. Scholars are very, very careful. They always have been, and it's very few. But this is why it's good to compare translations, look at different ones. There is no one more holy translation, okay? If you're a King James-only person, I'm sorry, scholars have proven that translation has some flaws in it. It does. It's a great translation. But be very careful because that's what happened to the Roman Catholic Church. Some bad translations led to a whole history of tradition that built up around those translations. And they held on tightly to it instead of weighing it against better scholarship and saying, oops, we made a mistake here. Let's change that. That usually didn't go over well in the Catholic Church. And frankly, doesn't go over real well in Baptist churches sometimes either. So let's be careful how we hold on to our traditions. What Luther came to understand is that it was not the faith that made you righteous. It was accepting, believing, and trusting in what God had done through Jesus Christ that made you righteous. Through Christ, we are declared to be righteous, not because we did the work to make ourselves righteous, but because when he died on the cross, he did the work. And we are trusting in that, and it is declared and applied to us once and for all. This means that according to this passage, and this was ground-shaking, earth-shattering to Luther, 
What this meant was that the way to be righteous was by faith. It was to accept and trust what Jesus had done. That's it. That's what God required of us. That's how we gain access to the grace. It was to look at Jesus and say, yes, I believe, I accept him as my Savior. It is through faith and faith alone. Trusting in the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Now, I've said all along our goal here is not to just study Luther. The goal is not to make you educated in Luther, but to use him as an example. Because my guess is some of you are struggling with the same things that Luther struggled with. Or if you're not, you might know someone who is, or you might struggle with these things someday. But at the end of the day, if Scripture doesn't teach these things, it really doesn't matter what Martin Luther thought. And Luther would say amen to that, I guarantee. So let's look at what Scripture teaches about faith alone. And just to understand the importance of this, I want to read a quote uh, by a theologian. And he said this about faith. Just listen, this is profound. Knowing from James 2.26 that there is such a thing as dead faith, and from James 2.19 that there is such a thing as demonic faith, and from 1 Corinthians 15.2 that it is possible to believe in vain, and from Luke 8.13 that one can believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away, and knowing that it is through faith that we are born again, 1 John 5.1, and have eternal life, John 3.16 and 36, therefore surely we must conclude that the nature of faith and its relationship to salvation is of infinite importance. If I could sum that up in my own words, it's really important that we get faith right. We we have to get this right. Because there are people with a definition and an understanding of faith, and this was true of Luther in his day, before these times, that think they know what faith is, and according to Scripture, they're wrong, and that wrongness is a very, very big deal with dire consequences. So this is not theological hair-splitting. This is eternal life. And so as we look at this, we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask Scripture, and therefore going to God, what does it mean to have faith? And in order to do this, what I'd like to do is walk through one of the the key books of the New Testament that was so important to Martin Luther, the book of Romans. We're going to do this very quickly. I'll put the uh, verses up here on the screen, which is going to be a little tough for me. But uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can do that. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. But let's start with what is the thesis statement of Romans. Paul writes this right in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. This is the thesis statement, the subject, if you will, for all of Romans. Everything else that Paul writes in Romans explains these two verses. This is the beginning and the end and the sum total of Romans. And so, it's important here to understand what Luther understood, that this was a big deal. And we need to get this right. And, in order to understand what these verses mean, we have the rest of Romans to look at. So that's what I want to do very quickly, just look at a few chapters here. First of all, chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Paul goes into talking about Jews and Gentiles. 
And specifically in the Jewish mindset, they would have said, hey, Paul, we're saved by keeping the Old Testament law. We do really good stuff that God told us to do, he commanded us to do, and by doing those good things, we are saved. And Paul says, that's not true. It was never that way. It was never meant to be that way. You're misunderstanding what God said. And so he explains that in chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And then in chapter uh, 3, verse 21, he says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So it is a righteousness that is received not through the law or works of righteousness, acts of righteousness, efforts on our part. It is a righteousness that is received through faith. So right there, right there, the Catholic Church has some issues. Because right there, they're saying this righteousness is, in fact, Paul's, in his context, he's specifically saying it's not through what you do, the works of the law, it is through faith. Okay, well, that's good. What do you mean by that? Look down in verse 25. Because he goes on, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It's kind of like Paul saying, hey, if you missed it, let me just put it in there again. It's by faith. By faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, and verse 26 goes on, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying the way to be right is not your own efforts, it's the effort of Jesus Christ. And the effort of Jesus Christ is, as the eternal Son of God, he went as a sacrifice in your place. A sacrifice of atonement means the sins of the sinner are put on the sacrifice and it is put to death to pay for those sins. This was done over and over again in the Old Testament in a symbolic way. But Paul says, understand, Jesus did it all. All of your sin was put on him. Because your sins are paid for, you are counted as righteous. Not only that, but the very righteousness of God, rather than your own righteousness, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is counted to you. Do you want to know what to claim when you stand in the very presence of God? You don't stand up and say, man, I'm awesome. You better let me in. You stand up and say, your son, Jesus Christ, is my righteousness. I have nothing before you. He is everything. And how do you hold on to that? How do you declare that? Faith. You believe that that is true. That's what faith is. It is a sacrifice received by faith. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 4 and he talks about Abraham and he says, look, let's go to one of the pivotal figures of the Old Testament. He says, even Abraham was not saved by what he did. He was justified by, he was made right by faith. We're going to skip through that and go to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Good. Chapter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous, said to be righteous, determined by a judge, yes, you are right, we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's no works here. There's no, hey, you're justified because you did a really good job. He says, no, it's through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. How do we get the grace of God? We 
believe in it. That's faith. The Catholic Church had piled one thing on another, on another, on another, and said, if you want to get the grace of God, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and you can do all of those things, and man, you better hope that it's enough. That's not hope. That's slavery. And Luther felt that crushing blow. It would never be enough. And then he opened scripture and, and God, I think, removed blinders of the traditions he had been taught and he started seeing it's right there. It said it all along. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Faith is not something that God looks at and says, wow, you have a lot of faith. I will save you. That's not how it works. Faith looks at Christ and says, that's salvation. I'm joining with him. I'm linking my life to him. I am not who I am anymore. I am saved through Jesus Christ. This thing right here, this really ugly green tub back here that you in the balcony can see, this is our baptismal. When you're baptized, and this is why baptism is so important, when you're baptized, you are lowered down in the water, and it is a symbolic funeral. I'm dead. I'm buried. Me, in my own righteousness, and my own sinfulness, gone. And then when you're raised back out of the water, you are raised in Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of faith. I am not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. We have to be very careful that we don't make faith a work. Next week, Pastor Al is going to be teaching on some of the ways that we need to reclaim faith today. And I'll throw one in here. You can pick up on it if you want. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. No. Um, But one of them, frankly, is that we have so elevated faith for its own sake. Oh, you need to have more faith. You have great faith. Faith can move mountains. If you just do more in faith, God has to bless you because you have faith. If you're not being healed, you don't have enough faith. No. That's faith in faith. That's not faith in God. Faith says I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. But let's go on. Romans chapter 10. Verses 5 through 10. He begins by quoting Moses from the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things, these acts of righteousness in the Old Testament law, will live by them. And then Paul's discussing this. He says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Understand what Paul's doing in these verses. He's saying... If you believe you're going to trust in your own acts to make you righteous, that's saying you're going to go farther than Jesus Christ. That somehow your acts of righteousness are even greater than Christ's act of righteousness. You've gone higher than him. You've gone lower than him. Good luck with that because you're not going to outrighteous Jesus Christ. You're not going to do it. He says, so why? Why would you try to be saved that way? And then he goes on, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believed, believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Do you see what he's saying there? 
He's saying, no, no, the gospel is not something you've got to go out there and seek. You don't have to climb steps to a monastery. You don't have to climb some fake steps in Rome that supposedly were in Pilate's house and kiss the floor where supposedly there's the blood of Jesus. Who knows what it is? You don't have to do that. The gospel's right here. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross in your place and rose again from the grave, promising eternal life to all who believe. That's the gospel. Our job, if you want to say it, our works, if you want to, it's just to say yes. I believe. I accept that. And the gospel, the Bible, actually says even our faith is only possible because God makes it possible. So he gets the glory for all of it. We are saved through faith. And faith alone. Now, does this mean that we can live however we want? Because... Luther was accused of this by the church of his day. Well, Luther, you're just saying it doesn't matter how you live. You're saved by grace through faith alone. So go do whatever you want. And that was not at all what Luther was saying. Ironically, it's the same thing Paul was accused of by the Jewish tradition. Well, Paul, you're just saying believe in in this guy that died on a Roman cross and you don't have to do any acts of righteousness at all and, and you can get into heaven. And that's not exactly what Paul was saying either. And again, and I've come back to this again and again, the structure of Paul's letters is informative. Because he spends the early chapters in so many of his letters talking about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is who Christ is, and it's what he's done. But then he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, well, believe that, and you're good. He goes on and says, now this is how it changes your life. If you believe that, here's how you're going to live. You don't live this way to earn that. See, otherwise he would have reversed his letters. Live this way and you get the righteousness of Christ. But that's not what he said. He said, here's what Christ did to make you righteous and here's how you're going to live because of it. Here's how it changes everything. And I'll just give you one example. Romans chapter 12 is the pivotal point in the book of Romans. He spends 11 chapters talking about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and what it means. And then he gets to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Not earning. Worship. Worship is a response to what God has done. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you get any sense from that passage? that the Bible is teaching, you just believe and then go on living however you want. It doesn't matter. No, what I see is, hey, you need to question everything. You've been saved by Jesus Christ. He has declared you to be righteous. You don't get to go on thinking the way you were. You don't get to go on living the way you were. This is a total new way of living in Jesus Christ. This changes everything. And he spends the next several chapters talking about just how great of a change that is. He goes on to talk about love. Submission to worldly authorities, patience with other believers, even his own ministry plans that flowed out of his faith. He says, you want to know why I do what I do? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. And for that reason, I've given up everything and I'm traveling the world and putting my life on the line so I can tell others about Jesus Christ. Not to pay back Jesus or earn what he has given me, but because I believe it to be true. And it changes everything. But before he gets to any of that, he says this in Romans 12.3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, 
Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. He's going to talk about humility here. But look at where he bases it. But rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. He says, why should you live humbly? Because you weren't saved by yourself. You didn't make yourself righteous, so why should you have any pride at all? He says, if the gospel says you were nothing and lost in sin and trapped there, and God, through His grace, saved you, and it was only by faith that you accepted that, not any goodness of yourself, shouldn't that make you humble? He'll talk about marriage in the same way in Ephesians. He'll say, let's talk about the gospel. Jesus Christ gave His life for the church. Husbands, love your wives that way. He says, the church submits to Christ. Wives, that's your pattern for your relationship with your husband. He says, take that gospel that you believe in and let it change your life. Faith changes everything. Luther wrote, faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works. But if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. That's what scripture talks about. Paul said at the beginning of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Power changes things. Faith that saves us changes us. One cannot be saved by Christ, come into a relationship with Christ, be counted as righteous in Christ, and not also be changed by Christ. That's all part of the gospel. The difference is that any works... Any righteous things that we do are because we're saved. They are the fruit of Christ's righteousness in our life, not us trying to earn the righteousness of Christ in our life. That is a big, big difference. You see, there's great fear when you're trying to earn something. But if somebody says, you've got it all, go live it. That's freedom. It's releasing you to live how Christ has made you to be. As we leave here, I just want to give you an illustration of kind of two types of faith. One is sort of a faith that just checks a box and says, I believe, and goes on like none of it matters. And the other faith is a faith that changes you forever. Imagine I go to an art show, and there are two paintings on a wall. One is beautiful. It's, it's a Monet or just something very classic. It's, it's beautiful. It's just gorgeous, well done, awesome. The other one looks like it was done by a third grader. They call it modern art, okay? It's not my thing. Maybe it's yours. If it is, I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. But it's, it's, it's just ugly. It's flat out ugly, and I don't see the skill in it, okay? There's a little bit of subjectivity here, but not much. And so I'm looking at these paintings, right? And somebody walks up, and they say, they declare a truth. They are both beautiful. Don't you believe? Now, I've just been asked to have faith. And I look at the one, and I say, yes. It is beautiful. I agree. I am believing in the beauty of this painting. Absolutely. The other one I look at and I say, no, I don't believe in the beauty of this painting. I have no faith in its beauty. I go home. I wake up the next day, the day after that, day after that, day after that. Is my life changed in any way, shape, or form by my stating I believe in the beauty of this painting? Nah, I don't care. You want to put one in your house? Who cares? really makes no difference in my life whatsoever. I was just stating an opinion or agreeing with the truth. That's all it was. Now imagine I'm hiking, and I fall off the edge of the cliff. 
and I happen to grab a branch on my way down, and that branch is breaking. And I'm in big trouble. And somebody throws a rope down to me, and they say, do you believe I can save you? Now I'm also asked a statement of belief. Could I in that moment say, yes, I believe that you can save me, keep hanging on to the branch and just stay there and go on about my life as if nothing had happened? No, something is going to change. I'm either going to plummet to my death because I don't actually grab the rope, or I'm going to grab the rope and be saved. Faith is grabbing the rope. It looks at it and says, I believe it is true. I see it to be true. I agree that it is true. I am placing my faith in it. And by placing my faith in it, I am grabbing onto it with everything that I have so that I may be saved. Now, friends, understand, we do this every day. Every day, our world is throwing you a rope. Everyday culture, tradition, the media, our own ideas is throwing a rope. Grab this and you'll feel better. Grab this and you'll be saved. Do this and everything will work out fine. Even false teachers and preachers are saying that. Just hold on to this and you'll be fine. There's all these ropes. And there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith says yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only in Christ is there salvation. There is no assurance in trusting in your own works of righteousness. That will only lead to despair and slavery. But through faith in Christ, we can know that we are saved and have the freedom of the righteousness given to us through grace in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, faith is such a struggle. There's so many things that compete for our belief, for our faith. In many ways, going back to that picture, it's like we're hanging off the side of that cliff, desperately clinging to something that is breaking and crumbling, and the culture and the world is throwing so many things at us, saying, grab this, it'll save you. And Father, none of it will. And what the Catholic Church of Luther's day was throwing at him would not save him. And he knew that. And through your word, he understood what it meant to have faith in Jesus Christ. And he said that. That truth of the gospel that is the righteousness of God, that's something I can grab onto. And through faith, he accepted what his works could never accomplish. But what Christ's work accomplished once and for all, the salvation of our souls, the payment for our sins, the restoration to a right relationship with you, and the hope based on Jesus Christ of spending eternity in your presence. And I pray today, if there is anyone here thinking just a little bit more, if I just work a little bit harder, if I just try a little bit more, Father, help them to turn to your grace and accept it through faith and faith alone. And Father, if there's someone here saying, I'll never be good enough, thinking you would never accept them, that they could never be good enough for them, may this this beautiful message of salvation by grace through faith alone set them free. They don't have to be good enough. You've already done everything necessary. They have to believe. And may today be the day of that belief. 
when they say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I grab on to the rope of salvation through Him and it will change my life forever. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.